Well, we are in our series called Not Afraid. And uh, I shared with you last week some headlines um, that could make you easily afraid. And I found a bunch of more headlines this week, um, but I didn't print them for you um, because probably you've watched some of the news. Um, I know if you're following the stock market at all, you've seen some of that, and uh, none of that's good news this week. But God's in control, and uh, one day, we sang that last song on purpose, I want to sing Humble King, um, he's the God of the broken, and he will care for us, amen, he is the God of the broken, he will care for us. And then we sang, uh, we fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. One day, everybody you know is going to kneel before God, everybody you know. If they don't believe in him, it won't matter. They're still going to kneel before him. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess um, who he is. And so um, we believe that with all our hearts. And uh, so no matter what our future is, how uncertain our future is, um, we have a God we can trust. Amen? So I thought it'd be good today to start with something a little lighter than last week. That was kind of a downer, wasn't it? And all those, all those uh, news items. And uh, I got this, Brother Robert, you're going to love this. Um, these are 15 police com uh, comments that were made to policemen taken from the police car videos around the country. Um, and uh, these are actual policemen who've stopped someone. They're talking with them, and these are comments on the video. Uh, the num Number one is, uh, relax. The handcuffs are tight because they're new. They'll stretch out after a while when you wear them. So <laughs> I don't think handcuffs stretch out, by the way. So <laughs> I love this one. The officer says, put your hands on the car. He says, if you take your hands off the car, I'm going to make your birth certificate a worthless document. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like this one. The police officer says, uh, if you run, you'll only go to jail tired. <laughs> so, I mean, we're going to get you. Um, and then the other one says, uh, can you run faster than 1,200 feet per second? In case you didn't know, that's the average speed of the 9-millimeter bullet fired from my gun. <laughs> so... Um, and this, this officer says, so you don't know how fast you were going? Well, I guess that means I can write anything I want on the ticket, huh? <laughs> I don't like that thought, by the way. Um, he says, uh, number, uh, uh, number 10 on my list here says, uh, yes, sir, you can talk to the ship supervisor, but I don't think it's going to help. Oh, did I mention? I am the ship supervisor. <laughs> so I like this one. You know how you can just say, well, is there any way you could just give me a warning? Today And he goes, warning? You want a warning? Okay, I'm warning you not to do that again, or I'll give you another ticket. <laughs> so, and this is an alcohol sobriety test. He says, here's the last, here's the, yeah, the answer to your last question will determine whether you're truly drunk or not. Is Mickey Mouse a cat or a dog? <laughs> I like this officer. Fair, you want me to be fair? Listen, fair is a place where you go to ride rides, eat cotton candy, and step in monkey poop. <laughs> uh, and this one said, you know, you tell how, how people think officers have these quotas they have to reach. Um, he goes, yes, we do have quotas. Two more tickets and my wife gets a new microwave toaster oven. <laughs> um, I like this one. No, sir, we don't have quotas anymore. We used to have quotas, but now we're allowed to ride as many tickets as we want to. <laughs> This guy says, well, I'm glad to hear the chief of police is a personal friend of yours. At least you know someone you can call that'll post your bail. <laughs> um, and this one's just raw. It says, um, uh, you didn't think we gave pretty women tickets? 
You're right. Sign here. <laughs> That's tough. That's tough. Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. And we're going to study today a beautiful passage about not being afraid. Just crystal clear truth this morning. We're going to take it from a couple of different Psalms and a little bit of work in Proverbs. I want to help you with the setting of this. If you just look at Psalm 56, um, the actual psalm itself starts with the instructions for the musicians and the story behind the psalm. Um, sometimes when David or Asaph or some of these other songwriters, the psalms are songs in the Old Testament. And uh, sometimes when they would write these songs out under inspiration of God, um, they would also include who the writer is or what the circumstances were. And this says... For the director of music to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. I can't wait to get to heaven and hear whatever that sound is or tune is. A dove on distant oaks. Um, uh, um, Mictum, uh, when the Philistines had see, asked, seized him to Gath. So this is David's song, King David. Before he was actually appointed king, he'd already been anointed the king as a young boy. But King Saul is still alive, and so he, he's not the king of Israel yet. And he's actually, Saul has become very jealous, if you know any of your Old Testament stories. Saul's become very jealous and started chasing David around. And David's had to run for his life. He's lived in caves, he's lived in the wilderness. He's hid all over the place from Saul. And at one point, he's actually captured by the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were arch enemies of Israel. And the Philistine army was the army that used to have a soldier named Goliath. That's right. Goliath, the giant, massive, magnificent warrior of the Philistine army, was a guy named Goliath. And David, little boy, went out to the front lines one day. I call him the pizza delivery boy. He's bringing bread and cheese to his brothers. Goes to the front lines. Here's this guy for 40 days. This giant has walked in the valley and insulted Israel and the entire army and the God of the army and nobody's done anything. And David said, well, I'll take care of that. And so day 41 was a rough day for Goliath because a little boy came out with a slingshot, took one shot, hit him right in the head, sunk in his forehead, he fell dead. And David literally removed Goliath's head from him that day with his own sword. And later, King David is roaming through um, the woods on the run from uh, King Saul and a man gives David Goliath's sword and lets him have it back. And so David has Goliath's sword as he's running around and all of a sudden the Philistine army surrounds David and the few men that were following him and he is captured by the Philistines. That's the guy he killed and he's carrying Goliath's sword with him when he's captured. So you talk about in trouble. You talk about a mess. The enemies of the land that I'm running, I'm running from my own king, right? King Saul is the king of Israel, my people. I'm running from him, and I'm captured by the enemy of our people. I mean, there's just no winning for David. And, and now he's captured, and when they take him before king, the king of King Achish, the king of Gath, he literally, this is a story some of y'all know in the Old Testament, it's a weird one, where David pretends to be completely insane. He babbles, he drools in his beard, he just acts like he's lost his ever-loving mind. And the king goes, am I not surrounded by enough crazy people in this world? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm the king, so I've got all these 
politicians and political people and all these people all the time messing with me. Am I not surrounded by enough crazy people? Get him out of here. In other words, we're not going to kill him. He's, he's no use to us. So they let him go, but he's still captured um, in, in the land of Gath. He's still with the enemy. And this is where he writes the song. So it's kind of an interesting place to be to decide, hey, I need to write a song. <laughs> I mean, he's, there, there's no hope for David. He, if he's set free, he's got to run back to Israel. And who's chasing him in Israel? The entire Israeli army. You know, if he's, if he's held captive, then he's a prisoner of the enemy of Israel. So it's a rough spot to be in. He's on the run from everybody. Um, by the way, not only is David a great shepherd, you know that from his young life, he's anointed as the king, and he becomes one of Israel's greatest kings uh, ever. Um, but uh, he's a great musician. We know, we know that from when he played for Saul, which soothed Saul's headaches. That's how good he could play. Um, he's, he's a great songwriter. We know that from his psalms. But now apparently he's also a great actor because he acted like an insane guy, and the king went, wow, he's insane. <laughs> so David's got all these gifts. He's one of those people. You remember the kids in high school that could do everything? You know, they were like the perfect athlete. They played every sport. Then when the drama team would come along and have to do their end-of-the-year play, it's like, how did that guy get in the play? He's an athlete. He can do everything. That's, that's who David is, and he's just gifted at everything. So here he is, captive, Psalm 56, and he writes these words. They'll be on the screen with you. This is New American Standard Translation. Be gracious to me, O God. One translation right there says, be merciful to me. It's a good uh, Hebrew word. It's got a little of both meanings in it. Oh God, for man has trampled upon me. No kidding. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, here's our phrase. When I am afraid, there's two things. I will put my trust in you, in the God whose word I praise. In God whom I, I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can a mere man do to me? Now, if you're David sitting in a prison in Gath, okay, you're sitting in a prison in the enemy's territory, you're pursued by the Israeli army and the Philistine army, and you say this phrase, what can men do to me? Pretty much anything they want, David. We could sell you back to your own king. You know, I mean, they could have literally paid a rent, had told King Saul, hey, we find, we caught the guy you're chasing. Here's your, you know, pay us a little ransom and you can have him back. Or they could just take him themselves as prisoner and kill him. So he, that's an interesting phrase in this passage, isn't it? What can man, mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger, put down the peoples, O God. David praying in what's called an imprecatory prayer. We'll get to that. You have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. And you want a verse to memorize? Just catch the end of that. This I know. God is for me. Where is David? Sitting in a prison. And with the Philistines pacing in front of his door. This I know. God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in the God I have put my trust, uh, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thanks to, offerings to you. Listen to this. 
from the prison, I will render thanks offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So I want you to look at verse 3 and 4 as we start this. Verse 3 and 4, David goes from, and this is King James. I memorized King James as a kid. Matter of fact, all my kids were in the Awana. It's like our Pioneer Club, but it's, it's in different churches. There's a thing called Awanas. And in Awanas, all my kids went through that. They had to memorize verses every week. And one of the verses they memorized was this verse. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. That's King James. I remember it in my head because I used to have to say it to them over and over and over again. And then a big storm would come into our house and I'd go to their room and go, say it out loud. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. And we'd, we'd get them all quiet and asleep in their room, all three of the kids in the same room. We'd get them all quiet and asleep. And then I'd go back into the bed. And by the time we'd lay down, this big boom, thundered hit. And they'd go, ah! And they'd come running and jump in our bed. And I'd say, okay, just say it in here. What time I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee. And I'll sit by dad. So we'll sleep in your bed. So, But David goes from what time I'm afraid, and there's a little phraseology between it. And then he says, I will not be afraid. He actually says this twice in this psalm. There's a time that I am afraid. In other words, it comes on me. There's this fear that comes into my life. But I will not be afraid. It's a declaration of, no, of not being afraid. It's pretty amazing how David does this. Um, and there's six keys to it. The reality is that there are times when fear is crouching at his mind's door and, and crouches against us. And we can, we can look at circumstances and certain times we can be afraid as if we let it creep into our mind. But if we will take David's solution in this psalm, if you'll just apply this, he conquers the whole deal. And here's what he says. Six keys to not be afraid. Number one, David knows and he counts on God's mercy and grace. Verse one, crystal clear. David says, be gracious, be merciful to me, O Lord. David knows God is a merciful God. He knows he's in a mess, by the way. And he knows he's in trouble. And so he's asking God to have mercy on him. He's asking God to have uh, grace, to, to show him much grace. Um, there's another song that David wrote called, it's Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms in the, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. He says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy, same word grace and mercy, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Now listen to this next verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. You think God's not a gracious God? He takes your sin. When you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, he takes your sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west. You know east and west can never meet because further east you go, then there's, it just never comes back to each other. They don't. So God goes, it'll never ever be there. You can't separate them any further than I've separated them. And God literally says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his mercy is towards those that fear him and trust in him. So David knows he is a gracious God. If you want to overcome your fears, you have to know God's mercy. You have to ask him. By the way, you should ask him. David, David starts his song and says, God, just be gracious to me. I spend a lot of Sunday mornings uh, on my knees at this altar, pacing this sanctuary with it quiet in the early mornings, saying, Lord, we just need you to be, I need you to be merciful to me today. Would you just show mercy on us and our church and our people? Show up today and reveal yourself and teach us and help us grow. So, so if you want to overcome your fears, you have to know God's mercy and ask him for it, as well as you can very often just thank him. Thank you for being gracious to me, God. Thank you for your mercy.
Um, and I just encourage you to do that all the time. It's one of the ways to help you overcome fear. Any kind of fear, you can overcome that way. Secondly, David knows of God's judgment and justice. And this is interesting, verse 7, very interesting twist in the, in the song. David prays what's technically called an imprecatory prayer. It's a very fancy theological term that means I'm going to pray against you. <laughs> and uh, these aren't recommended in your New Testament, by the way, but I'm going to give you a little context of it because I'm going to tell you how this kind of works for us and uh, make you like Kurt even better after this. So, so but <laughs> he says, David says, I want you to bring down my enemies. Listen to what he says. In your anger, God, I want you to bring down my enemies in your anger. That's an interesting prayer, isn't it? Um, what David understands is a couple of things. Um, God gets angry at certain things. What does God get angry at? Injustice and unrighteousness. So when David's asking God to do a judgment on some people, his prayer isn't bring down my enemies because I'm so angry. He's not saying, look, I'm overreacting to this or I'm reacting to this and I need you to answer my prayers now. That's the way we normally pray what we think is an imprecatory prayer. When you get a bad day at work and your boss, you know, is just all over your case and you didn't do anything wrong and you feel real, real cheated by all that, you pray, you know, God, just make him have a bad day. Would you just let him let him tires be flat on his car or have a wreck or something like that? You know what I'm saying? You kind of, you kind of get frustrated like that. And, uh, it's interesting because we think in terms, we think in terms of God doing something negative to people that are, offensive to us, people that are harming us, people that, that hurt us, right? David's not exactly praying that. He's saying, look, if this makes you angry, that's what I want you to respond with, is how you judge people. Now, the Philistine army and the Philistines themselves are people far from God, and they need to be judged. Saul himself, by the way, will, these prayers will be answered by God. Saul himself will have a terrible end to his uh, career as a king because he's he's does evil in the sight of God. So God's going to answer these prayers for David, but it's because he prayed them not in his anger, but in God's anger. So I started just wrestling my head about this and going, all right, God, the things that really make you angry are injustice and unrighteousness. And there's, there's ways where you, and I started thinking through um, all the places that uh, I've been on mission fields overseas and all the the injustice I've seen and homeless people and people that that people could help, but the, the political system has decided to suck all the money away from all these homeless people and all these people that live in terrible poverty and the political people have taken all that and they're living fine and letting everybody else uh, live terrible. I thought, now that's got to make God angry. And so, I, and I went and found this verse, Psalm 82. I think I left it in your notes, but it'll be on the screen here. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. That's another psalm where David's saying, hey, you vindicate them because you care for fatherless people. You care for the weak and people that are afflicted and destitute. And I'm just going to give you a quick little short testimony. I've worked with a lot of families over time in and out of divorce situations and all that kind of stuff. And the 
police came up with a term a while back, the judicial systems, came up with a term called deadbeat dads. And those dads that got divorced, but they would not pay uh, to support their family. They're called deadbeat dads. And it's a big problem in our culture. What's interesting is I know a small handful of deadbeat dads, people who do not do what's honorable by their divorce situation. They don't take care of their family. You know what I know about those guys? Every single one of them that I know personally. Because I don't know everybody. I just know these guys. You know what I know about them? They're absolutely miserable. And their careers and their relationships and everything around them continues to crumble and fall apart and get worse and worse and worse. And I watch it happen and go, don't you understand? God's not going to let you mistreat and, and, and treat people like that, especially people you've committed to love and they're part of your, supposed to be part of your family. And I watch it happen time and time again. And I see it in other places in our culture. There's a whole bunch of times when God just stands up and demonstrates he's going to care for weak people. He's going to care for hurting people and he's going to vindicate them. And so David's praying this great prayer that, uh, that will be answered, by the way. So number three. So David knows God's judgment and justice. David counts on God's mercy. Number three is David knows God cares about him personally. And then he says that phrase is so awesome. And I know God is for me. God is for me. Um, listen to what he says in the passage. He actually says, God knows my wanderings. God knows my wanderings. My wanderings. And David has wandered all over. He's been on the run for years from King Saul. And he says, God knows every path I've taken, every step that I've taken. There's a, another theological term for that. We say that God is omnipotent. He's everywhere and he knows everything and he sees and hears everything. And so here's this beautiful, beautiful passage where he says, God is not an absentee God. Our culture constantly says, God is an absentee God. He's just, he wound everything up and he got it started, but he did not, he doesn't show up in your personal life every day. Our culture teaches that all the time. And people say it all the time about God. That is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of my personal salvation. It's not the God of your salvation. David, close to God, man after God's own heart, says, God is very acquainted. He's personally acquainted with my paths my plans and my wanderings. It actually says in the passage, he keeps my tears, listen to this, he keeps my tears in his bottle. He has a bottle that he keeps my tears in and your tears. He has a, a bottle that he stores that up in. It actually says he, he has a record. He has a record of that. And in, in truth, when he says it, he says, you have taken account of my wanderings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? Don't you just keep record? You know, you've never, ever suffered. You've never suffered where God hasn't been part of that. Now, this is the part of the service where I need to do what Josh is going to call the obligatory embarrassing pastor's family illustration. So um, Josh, Josh decided every time I do this now, he's going to have this slide and just make sure this is the obligatory Embarrass your, your family because you're the pastor and can do it. Um, but I want to tell you, when, when Annette and I had our first child, Joshua, 
and I had to go to the hospital. We went to the classes, you know, sat through all those um, birthing classes and watched a bunch of stuff that made me sick to my stomach. You know, I learned how to help her breathe and, you know, what to do. And then they taught you about the machines. They had all these fancy machines. Now they hook up to the baby. And you can hear the baby's heartbeat and you can see all this. And, you know, then there's this machine that's hooked up to her and you can tell her when her contractions are coming. You know, and they tell you, hey, you can just tell her because the little graph starts doing this. And then it gets up here. And it's like, okay, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. You know, well, she's feeling it. So stupid me, I'm following the instructions of the instructor, you know, holding her hand next to the you know, bed going, okay, baby, here comes another one. She's like, I know. You know, she knows they're coming. I'm just an idiot standing there. But I'm trying to encourage her the whole time. By the way, Josh took forever, uh, 41 hours by the time we left the house and the hospital. And we watched a whole bunch of people come and go and give birth while we were at the hospital. Back then they had the marker boards in the little waiting area. And the marker board, when we came in, we were like number eight on the marker board. There's like 10, 10 people having their babies. You know, eventually we were number three and then we were number one. And number one, number one, number one. And people come and go, come and go. And they're erasing names. And I'm like, come on, what's the deal? Josh just just was very happy where he was. He wasn't gonna wasn't gonna be born. So so it's a long long process. And the whole time I'm trying to encourage her. Well, he finally get her into the to the uh, delivery room, and they're gonna take Josh by C-section. And and there's all this. You know, I'm trying to encourage him. I'm saying it's okay. You know, just a little bit longer. It's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. I'm trying to encourage her. Right? Do you know what I know about birthing babies? Yeah, that's what she knew. I knew. So I was really, honestly, I was only an annoyance right there holding her hand, trying to think of all the right things to say. You ever have people trying to help you? <laughs> They're an annoyance. They're not, you're not helping. You know, you're not helping. Stop saying that. I think that's what she thought the entire time, you know, she was giving birth. So uh, I think there's a picture here. Yeah, there we go. Look at that. The baby. I think that may be Caleb, but we're not sure. It's one of our babies. I think that's St. Vincent. Anyway, go ahead. And uh, so the entire time, I know that's Caleb, by the way. So, And there's a little nurse taking care of her. Here's what's happening. While I'm holding one hand talking to her, there's a room full of doctors and nurses. There's a nurse on the other side of a net, and she's holding the other hand. And she has had three babies, okay? So she's standing there, and she says these words. I know exactly how you feel. I know what you're going through. We're going to get through this together. It's going to be okay. Just a little bit longer. Now, I'm over here going, here comes another contraction. The machine's doing this. It's going to be okay. We're, everything's fine. Everything's fine, right? I'm all, ah. here's the lady on the other side holding her hand going, been where you've been. Understand what you're going through. I got this, and it's going to be okay. I've been right where you've been. And we're going to get through this together. I'm right here for you. Who do you think is really there for her? Yeah, mommy. Mommy. I'm just like an invisible guy in the room that's annoying at best. On a good moment, I'm annoying to that whole scene. Many of you guys have been there. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But that nurse who had experienced what she was experiencing, and she spoke peace and comfort and help and hope right to her. Now, the Bible says this about Jesus. Can't miss our family photos. There's Caleb and Josh. The Bible says, oh, that's a little, I think that's Caleb too. Caleb's a very famous baby in our household. That was when I had some hair, by the way. This is what I was consoling. I was consoling Caleb about his hair right there going, hey, it's okay. 
probably going to come in. It may go back out, but it's going to come in. So and that's little Mary. That's little Mary when she was very brand new. So, but David knew the importance. Knew the importance of knowing God cares for me. Now, here's the interesting thing: the Bible says Jesus has been tempted in every circumstance like as us, but He is without sin. It also says He has suffered. Like us, he actually came as a suffering servant of man. He came to suffer with us. So when it said, when David says, I know you care, you know what Jesus says to us? I've been right where you've been. I've been forsaken by you, by, by my friends. I've been hurt by people I counted on. I've cried painful tears. Jesus cried several times in the Bible. I've cried painful tears of what it means to hurt. He cried so hard in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, that God sent angels into the Garden of Gethsemane to minister to him. So you don't think God knows? God is for you, and he's been right there with you. He's the one holding your hand going, I know exactly what you're going through. We're going to get through this together. He's the one saying that. Okay? So you can trust in him, and that's exactly what David's saying. Um, Jesus Jesus is really, for all of us, the one who will walk through the darkest, darkest times with us. I was at a funeral years ago. We had several very tragic situations in our uh, ministry years ago in Birmingham. And one of them was a 13-year-old girl who took her life. Just had too much pressure at school and uh, just decided to take her life. And it was very, very painful um, to stand next to the mom. And I stood the whole night, almost six hours right next to her at the coffin at her request, her and her husband, and all the kids from that elementary school showed up there. Kids that had insulted this little girl, kids that had made fun of her, came and came down the line. And this mother loved on them and hugged on them, told them it was going to be okay. And I remember trying to help this mother. A couple times she had some little mild, mild panic attacks, had trouble breathing, got her some water. And she said, I'm not leaving here. I want, I want to see everybody that comes to you know, to, to support our family. And I said, okay, we'll get you through this. And I remember holding her hand saying the same thing. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. About halfway through the night, coming down the aisle, was another mother who had lost a 17-year-old just about three weeks before. And she had, I'd done their funeral. And here comes this mom who knows exactly what it's like to stand beside the coffin of their daughter. And she just walks up and she puts her arm around this mother and she says, I know how this feels for you. Can I stand by you? And I was like, man, that felt so relieving to me because I couldn't answer. I couldn't talk. I didn't know anything to say. But here's this other mother who just three weeks before, we'd done exactly the same deal for her. And she's like, I just want to stand beside you. Won't talk to anybody. Just want to be right here. And I mean, the rest of the night, no more panic attacks, no more needing a break, no more needing water. She was just strong because she had someone there who had been through her suffering to support her. Here's what David knows about God. He walks through our wanderings with us and he has suffered with us every place we've suffered. He has suffered with us. Does it make sense to you? That's what David knows. Whom shall I fear? God is with me and God cares for me to the point that he takes my tears and he puts them in a bottle. God loves me so much that he will go through the storm with me and he'll get me through it. 
That's what David understands and that's what he knows. And he says, I just remind you, you've never cried, you've never suffered. Even when you suffer in silence, some of us as ministers, I'm going to tell my young ministers this, there are going to be times when what happens, you can't tell anybody. There are stories that I know in my lifetime um, that I've been through, I can't tell a soul. They were, they were either too private or too painful or it's too big of a mess and it'll create more mess and more sin. So you just got to go, okay, we worked through that, we're done. But you carry it in here and you go, gosh, that was unbelievable. Oh, and it gets heavy. And sometimes you just, you just break down and go, oh my goodness, what, a, what an amazing thing that I'm having to carry here. You've never cried a, a, or suffered in silence that God wasn't right there collecting your tears, caring for you with a personal understanding. Isn't that awesome? That's an amen moment, by the way. I don't know if y'all amen anymore, but that's what that is. That's an amen. You've never suffered alone and in silence when God wasn't right there with you collecting up your tears. So number four, David knows the importance of thanksgiving and keeping his vows to God. He knows the importance of thanksgiving, keeping his vows to God. He says, I am under vows to you. And what he's talking about is his promises that he's made to, to God. Now, in the Old Testament time, King David would have said things to God like, I'm sure he said this while he's on the run, hey, if you'll just let me live, I'll, you know, be your king. <laughs> if you could just get me through this, you know, I will follow you all my days. And, and so he's made some vows and some commitments in his life, much like we have. I want to trust in you with all my heart and soul, and I want to follow you all my days. You notice when I say the prayer of salvation, a lot of times I'll add that at the end. Lord, help me follow you all of my days, because I believe that's a big part of our commitment to him. When you're asking Jesus to come into your life, you're making a commitment to him, and part of that commitment should be to follow him all your days. Well, David's made those kind of things, and he says, hey, I have these vows, and I'm very thankful that you've come into my life and given me these vows. I have a good friend in uh, Texas, they were in my college group for years. Um, named Paul Timmerman, but everybody called him Pablo. And he's just, he's got a personality like I don't know how in the world to describe to you. Um, he's a very interesting, great fellow. But he's from my ministry past. And he's had, a, he came through Mobile to see some friends in Pensacola just recently. We were able to go have a lunch with him at Chick-fil-A and, and see his wife. And I did their wedding. Mary was in there. Uh, Mary was a little girl, a little flower girl in their wedding. And, uh, at the Bible college there. And, um, but Paul came through. And so, so we reconnect, we reconnected on Facebook a while back, but got a lot more intense when he came through town, we were able to talk. And so he's called me, we called me the other day and, and, uh, I said, and I, he left a message and I couldn't get back to him. So I called him back and we finally connected just the other day. And Paul said, um, I said, Paul, how are you doing? And he goes, I'm blessed. I'm going to say to you, and he's just making a declarative statement. He said it just like this. I wrote it down. He says, I'm going to keep telling everybody I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And I said, tell me what's going on. And he said, well, uh, his wife, who's young, has got to have a heart cath. It's got everybody sort of panicked. His daughter, who has some uh, panic attack issues, uh, got suicidal just a few nights ago. She's 18 or 19 years old. Got suicidal a few nights ago and... and uh, called a friend who called the sheriffs. And, you know, Paul said we woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning with a whole bunch of sheriffs in our front yard <laughs> knocking on the door saying, think your daughter may be in trouble. And sure enough, she was she was really suicidal that night. And he said, so we're trying to work through that, trying to figure out how to, whether she can go to college or not now because of all that. And he's got all this going on. And when I said, how are you doing? He goes, I'm blessed. And I'm going to keep saying, 
I'm blessed. You know what he knows? He said, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are. God cares for me. He just knows that. God cares for him. And so he is going to keep giving thanks because of the vows he's made to God. He's just going to keep on giving thanks. And I'm telling you, it was a strength. When I was talking to him on the phone, I could hear the strength in his voice. I could hear him encouraging his wife sitting next to him talking. Yeah, our wives will talk to you while you're on the phone. His wife said, tell him this, tell him that. I could hear that, but I could hear, I could hear him as he's declaring his promise, his faithfulness of God to me. I could hear it just build them up. I thought, man, that's how we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to constantly just declare the goodness of God. So then you have the last two, which are the most important two. And I'm going to emphasize these at the end because they're so important. David praises God, uh, praises God's word, number five. And that's an interesting phrase. This is the phrase that's like a mantra. It's repeated twice in the passage. Um, and it's in between those two phrases we talked about what time I'm afraid and I will not be afraid. In between that is where you find uh, these two phrases we're going to talk about. The first one is, um, I praise God's word. I give praise to God's word. And I want you to see it in verse, I will put my trust in thee when I'm afraid. In God whose word I praise. Now we praise God and we are to praise Jesus. That's all in the Bible. There's also a phrase in the Bible several times. There's even a Psalm uh, 138. He says this. Uh, Psalm 119, by the way, is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about the value of God's word. Praising the value of God's word. Um, David values God's word and he praises his word consistently. Psalm 138, he says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart before the gods. I will sing your praises. Now, that's talking about God. I will bow down toward your holy temple. I will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. So I think part of us, part of the time, we miss the value of God's word. That's why David is in jail in, on the Philistine side of the fence going, God's for me because he knows God's word. He sat on the hillside for years reading and understanding God's word. And so he's always been saturated with God's word. And so he's actually giving praise. He actually says you should give praise to God's word. And it's part of how we overcome our fear. We say, Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that your word will speak to me. The Bible says, if you will bind the word of God upon your heart, when you go to sleep, it'll watch over you. Proverbs, when you go to sleep, it'll watch over you. It says when you rise up, it will speak to you. That's the praise. We should give praise to God for his word and we should thank him more often for his word. And then the last one, this is the most important one because it falls right in between the two words. Uh, what time I'm afraid, I will not be afraid. I'm going to praise God's word. And then he says, I will trust in you. Now, I think this is the key. It's actually twice in the passage. David says these words, and this is the key to overcoming your fear. You got it? I think all the other parts of it are important. Matter of fact, if you go through the list of five things you've looked at, all that stuff David learned from the word. God cares for me. God watches over me. God's merciful to me. Um, God God understands me. He got all that from the word. But here's where he says, I will trust in thee. 
In God I have put my trust. And it's a declaration. He's saying, I have put my trust in God. He's in prison. He's holding these prison bars saying, I have put my trust in thee. And, and he's, he's literally in a bad situation. He's in a difficult situation. So I want to remind you as we close what it means to put your trust in God. And, and this is sort of a maybe a seatbelt warning as I used to give. Or Brother Al says toes. If your toes are going to get hurt, now's the time. They're going to get hurt. Um, because there's a difference in knowing God and watch this. There's a difference in knowing God's word and trusting in God. There's a huge difference. Um, I think as our culture goes through some of its changes that we may see over the next couple of years, um, it's going to draw church people to that level where you where they have to decide, do I really trust in God or do I just know God? There's a huge difference in that. Trusting in God, by the way, is what made a little boy who had bread and cheese in his bag walk up and hear a cursing giant curse the name of his God. And he went, well, that ain't okay. And he literally went and he talked his brothers, talked, got through his brother's resistance, got through the king's resistance and told the king, look, that's not okay. I trust in God. Lion and bear story, y'all remember that? I've got a lion and bear story. I'm going to go out there and deal with this. That's when you trust God, you walk right up to the giants and you go, hey, I don't know who you think you are, buddy. But me and God, we got a whole thing going on here. He cares for me, not you, right? That's what trust is. And that's how David did it. So let me just give you the, the classic verse on it and remind you of what we've studied quite a number of times in the past. Trusting God means leaning fully, fully, fully on God. Not on myself. That's hard. Okay, so I'll give you give you some examples. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Great verse. Robert Cochran, Larry Ezel, several of us have it as his favorite verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He shall direct your path. You notice the emphasis? Trust in the Lord with all. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And he will direct your path. It means to have a wholehearted trust. The opposite of that is a half-hearted trust. Um, so what does that look like? Lean not on your own understanding. I'm just going to submit to you. We very often subvert and morph and twist what God tells us to do as instruction. We twist it into something that we like and we think is more doable. Okay? God gives us clear instructions. I want you to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Now, if, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But if you have shown love to your neighbor, shown love to your neighbor, you've obeyed this passage. If you've waved at your neighbor, not showing love, kindness. Not love. Okay? If you've taken a Easter uh, brochure from our church and put it on your neighbor's door when they weren't home so they wouldn't have to talk to them, not love, just kindness. Okay? Love your neighbor requires much more effort. Requires you to go, hey, we made some extra beef stew this week. 
can we just bring some over and you heat it up one night so you don't have to when you get home from work? Or hey, we just bought three extra pizzas. We wanted you to have one because we love you as our neighbor. Hey, I'm cutting my grass. I'll just cut your grass too. I love my neighbor. Right? You understand? Love your neighbor is what God calls us to do. You know what we tend to do? We go, well, yeah, I, I talked to my neighbor some. I, I waved at him. Yeah, we're friends. We're good. Not love. Okay? Just kindness. You understand the difference? See, I, I told you it's going to get uncomfortable. Everybody's like, oh, gosh, this is painful. Okay? So, but I'm telling you, God has a plan for his children. Let me give you another one. Um, God has a plan for his children to meet together corporately right here. You're here today preaching to the choir. You're here. We're meeting together corporately based on a plan that God started literally thousands of years ago that says, I want local people who follow me to get together, encourage one another, build each other up. I want them to hear uh, preaching and, and I want them to gather together and teach each other the value of being together. I want them to confess their faith together. Confess your faith together. And he actually says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves. And yet, here's what I hear. Today, there's many people who say, well, we, you know, I mean, churches just get so messy and there's people have problems and they pick on each other and there's all these little cliques and, you know, you just can't get into, the, you go to a big church, you can't really fit in. You go to a little church and, you know, it's all uncomfortable because they're so personal with you. And, eh, it's all, so, so here's what, and they, they always tell me this. Yeah, we haven't gone to church in a number of years, but let me tell you what we do. And they're very excited about it. I'll tell you what we do. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Sundays we just gather around the, the TV or the computer and you know, we put on one of the good guys, David Jeremiah on TV, man, he's awesome. Oh, he is, and he's a great teacher, great teacher, okay? And that's, our, that's how we do our church service, really. That's not church, it's television, okay? Sorry, it's not local church where you interact with people and their weaknesses can strengthen you and your weaknesses can help them we all can grow together. Your strengths can be a part of that. That's what God calls us to do. God calls us to be a part of a local church. Every Christian is supposed to be part of a local church. Half the Christians I know stay at home, watch some television show about God. You know, maybe a great one. Even a local church. They watch a local church. Yeah, that's our new church. We're just, yeah, we don't really go there. We just watch a lot. We're good. We're growing. We're growing. I'm like, no, you're not. Sorry. That's not the obedient part of that passage. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. That's not your couch. That's these pews. You understand? Preach it to the choir. So proud of y'all being here today. You didn't forsake the assembling. But you know what we do? We hear instructions and we say, oh, I fully trust in God. God says, hey, don't forsake the assembling. You go, okay, what that means is he wants me to hear the Bible and, uh, and pray some. That's what I'll do. No. He wants you to get attached to a local church. And you can tell your friends I said so, by the way. Just give them the, give them the web, web page for this now. I'm telling you, it's messed up when we do that. We have to trust in God for all our plans, for our families and our futures, for everything. When God says you should donate your time to the church for a cause like our mission week a few weeks ago, don't find it, don't make excuses and find a shortcut to that. Donate your time. When God says you should you, you should uh, share the love of God with your neighbors. Don't make excuses. When he says you should give more to our faith promise or missionaries or tithe more, I'm just telling you, please don't make excuses and say, Lord, I, I, you know how tough it is not right now. I'm just going to do that another time. God's not telling you to do it now because he wants you to do it another time. If he wants you to do it another time, he'd just wait. 
If He's asking you to donate, to stretch yourself out a little bit, to give more to a local ministry, ours or any other ministry, give it and watch God do His work. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You understand the difference? You know why David can sit in prison on the Philistine side of the fence knowing his life is this close to being ended by anybody that could walk by and go, God is for me. Be gracious to me, O God. I will trust in you. I will not be afraid because he understands what it means to trust and to walk with God. When God says you should open your heart and forgive those who have offended, a big lesson Larry's been teaching in a Sunday school class for quite a while. When he says open your heart and forgive those who have offended you, most of us do it half-hearted. We make excuses, go, eh, just, oof, I can't forgive it all, but I'll forgive some. God goes, that's not what I'm asking. That's part of the response I need. I need you to forgive all that's happened. So open your heart and forgive all. We tend to adapt his word to our own conveniences, don't we? When God says you should make more time for him daily, read more of his word, talk to him in prayer, set aside time for your family to have family devotions. When God says you should do that, when God says you should take your family and serve others more, you should literally stop spending weekends all about you, make some of your weekends all about people that have needs. Find a single mom in your neighborhood that needs some housework or yard work or just somebody to sit with her for a while. Find a widow in your neighborhood and serve them. When God says you should do that, don't make excuses. Man, Lord, you know my work schedule. You know how hot it is outside. And, you know, plus the lawnmower's not running good. I don't know if he'll cut our yard. Don't make excuses. That's not trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him. That's not what that is. That's you morphing God's words into something that's comfortable for you. You understand? How is that for painful? Pretty good? I did good tonight. All right. So I'm challenging you. That's what trust looks like. Now, Psalm 46, last verse of the day. I want you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Psalm 46. I encourage you, even though you have electronic Bibles, it's good to have paper ones too. They work good still. We looked at this uh, last week. We touched on Psalm 46 because it's a pretty cool verse to go with our fear, not, not afraid uh, study. So we looked at this. I want you to see verse 1. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. The American standard, the original American standard says a well-proven help in times of trouble. That's what King David knows that's what King David knows about God. He is a well-proven help. So here I am in Philistine jail. Had to act like a nut to get here, by the way. Had to act like I lost my mind. Here I am in jail. I will not be afraid. God is a well-proven help. God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help. Therefore, I will... We read these last week. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth should change. Though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, if mountains fall into the ocean, David says, or Psalmist says, I, I don't, though the waters roar and foams, though the mountains quake at its swelling, he says, I am not afraid. And then he says these words, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of God. God's in the midst of her. She will not be moved. He's talking about the stability of God. Now look at verse six. The nations made an uproar 
the kingdoms teetered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Verse 8. Who has wrought desolation in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts spears in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Here's our famous verse from Psalm 46. Almost everybody I know knows this verse. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So here's what the psalmist knows. Though the earth, the mountains fall into the ocean, and then he talks about all these nations that are at strife. Though all these nations are warring and there's all this craziness going on. The context of this passage is a lot of trouble. National tr nations rising against nations. Earth, the earthquakes, the, the falling into the sea, storms, all kinds of crazy stuff in there that we've been, a bunch of us have been reading about. All that stuff's in there. And he says, God, God, the New Testament says, the beginning of the birth pains of, of God doing a final work is the earth, all this stuff's going to speed up, and it has. I've been studying on it this week. It's amazing some of the stuff I've been researching. But here's what's crazy. In the midst of all that, here's the key to David trusting. This is the final key you get today. He says, just be still. Settle down. Just be still. And know, know in your heart, that I got this. Be still and know that I am God. I will care for you personally. I'll catch your tears in my bottle. I'll record your pain and suffering. That's a personal God. He's not distant. He's not absentee. He's right here with you. And that's a God you can brag on, by the way, to other people. By the way, when it talks about praising his word, I think that's where you should do it. I think you should brag to, to other people about God's word. Man, I found this great verse the other day. It says this, God, my refuge and strength. I found this other verse. It says, really cool. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in him. I will not be afraid. Isn't that cool? I think you can brag on God's word, and it's praising God's word by testifying to other people. So let me conclude by telling you this. If you want to overcome your fears and your anxieties, you must know the personal nature of God. And you got to just draw close to him, like David, and experience his personal love. That's why David could say, I'm not afraid, because he had trusted, literally trusted, wholly in God and done what God had asked him to. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me today.